Amen. It's been said that mixing Christianity with a political party is like mixing ice cream with horse manure. It might not harm the manure, but it sure messes up the ice cream. Maybe you'll get that later. If that's true, and I think it is, then we might conclude that the easiest way to avoid mixing the ice cream of Christianity with the manure of either political party, the best way to avoid mixing the two is to avoid talking about anything political. The problem with that approach, I think, is as politics increasingly becomes the national religion of the United States of America, it becomes increasingly difficult to talk about anything that isn't political. In fact, you would be hard-pressed to finish your quiet time in the morning reading a few chapters of Scripture or maybe even a few verses without confronting a host of political issues. And so at PBC, now for the sixth year in a row, we have taken the opposite approach. We have decided, rather than avoid what might be considered political, we have decided to, to lean in and, and devote some specific concentrated time to discuss two tough topics that are increasingly political in our world today, and those are the topics of abortion and racism. Most of our preaching at PBC is rightly uh, teaching through God's Word, verse by verse, book by book. And yet occasionally we'll devote a, a specific uh, time to, to deal with a specific topic. And for the past six years, we have devoted two weeks to talk about these two topics. And you might be wondering why, especially if you're new with us this year. Uh, like it or not, our nation is stained by two great evils. The evil of racism that led to chattel slavery and the Jim Crow South and the evil of abortion that has led to the murder of over 60 million babies since the legalization of abortion on demand in Roe v. Wade in 1973. Because of this, both abortion and racism are commonly discussed in our country. You can't get very far on any news feed without hearing something about one or both topics. You, dear brother, sister, friend, are hearing a lot about these topics from the world. That's undeniable. We think it's right for you to devote some specific invested time to hear about them from the Word of God. And when we go to the Word of God, we learn that these two issues are actually related. The culture would tell you that these are, are two extreme issues on two ends of the political spectrum, but God's Word will tell us that these are, in fact, not only cousins, but twin evils. Because both abortion and racism deny the truth in God's Word that all human beings are made in the image of God. And because all of us are created in God's image, regardless of size, 
we fight the evil of abortion. And because all of us are made in God's image, regardless of the color of our skin, we fight the evil of racism. So today, with God's help, we're going to begin the first of two sermons on two tough topics. And this year, I thought maybe we can make things a little bit more challenging and a little bit more uncomfortable. And let's go to really tough texts on these two tough topics to see what God's Word has to say. So I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 21, verse 20. Unlike our normal custom here at PBC, we didn't open our service with this scripture reading because outside of some sort of context, it would be very bizarre and strange, I think, to many of us. It's one of those types of tough texts. And because it's a tough passage of scripture and because it's such a tough topic, I'm going to ask you, if you will, to go with me one more time to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help together. So would you pray with me? Jesus, again, we come to you because we can't come to you enough. Even now as we prepare to hear from your word and a passage that is troubling to our modern sensibilities, we confess we need your help. I need your help. Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me. Protect me from any temptation to say what I shouldn't say or leave unsaid what should be said. And God, I pray that you would use your word rightly preached and applied to change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Is the Bible part of the problem? Are the scriptures at least partly to blame for the evils of racism that have plagued our world for centuries. Now, simply asking that question might seem offensive to some of you, but an increasingly vocal group of unbelievers would say, yes, the Bible is in fact part of the problem. For example... In his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, New York Times bestselling author Sam Harris writes this. In assessing the moral wisdom of the Bible, it is useful to consider moral questions that have been solved to everyone's satisfaction. Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. What moral instruction do we get from the God of Abraham on this subject? Consult the Bible, and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves, end quote. Is Sam Harris right? If he is, then Christians can hardly speak against the evils of racism. If he's right, then we would have to agree that our Bible is at least partly to blame for the evils of race-based chattel slavery that plagued these shores for nearly 250 years. To respond to the accusations made by people like Sam Harris... I'm going to suggest we need to go right into the eye of the storm. We need to go right into one of the toughest texts that deals with this particular issue. We're going to go to right to Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. 
If you know anything about the context, God's people have been delivered from slavery to Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They've made it it to the wilderness at Mount Sinai. And Moses is on the mountain receiving from God the laws that are meant to govern the nation of Israel. And among those many laws include laws regulating slavery. And one of the most troubling sets of those laws, at least for modern, modern people like us, comes in Exodus 21, verses 20 and 21. Listen to the text with me as you follow along in your Bible. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod, and the slave dives, or dies rather under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. That is a tough text. Today's sermon is going to be divided into two parts. First, we're going to, with God's help, examine the meaning of this text. What does it mean? And secondly, we're going to discuss its significance today for us. What does it, how does it apply to you, Christian, in 2022? So first, let's talk about the meaning of this tough text. Now, when we talk about the meaning of a passage of Scripture, and this actually should be true for any writing, whether it's the U.S. Constitution, USA Today, or the latest novel that you're reading, the meaning is what the author intended when he wrote it. Meaning is bound up not in the reader, not in the individual, but in the author, in the speaker, in the person writing. So for example, a couple of weeks ago, months ago maybe, many of you chuckled when I introduced Holly Buteau as my sister and wife before she came up to read the scriptures. And uh, some of you rightly asked me, well, what did you mean by that? Now, you don't get to decide what I meant. Now, what I meant is what I intended to communicate, is that here is my wife, and also she is in Christ, my sister. And I kind of communicated that in a really kind of clunky sort of way. In fact, I heard Holly muttering under her breath, that was weird, as she walked to the stage to read the scripture. But the point remains that meaning is bound up in the intent of the author, not in the recipient. You don't get to decide what I meant. I meant what I meant, even if I didn't quite say it clearly. The same is true with God's Word, except God's Word doesn't struggle or stumble in its communication. Meaning is bound up in what the author intended. So here, just right off the bat, here's what we cannot do with Exodus 21. We cannot spiritualize it and say, well, Moses is ultimately referring to bondage or slavery to sin or something like that. No, We need to understand what Moses meant when Moses wrote these words given to him by God on Mount Sinai. And to do that, we're going to investigate a few key concepts. First of all, consider with me the institution of slavery. The institution of slavery. When you hear the word slave, your mind almost immediately goes where? Slavery here in our nation. And rightly so. Slavery in our nation is a very black mark 
on this nation's history. But we need to remember that the law of Moses was written some 3,000 years before slavery began on these shores. So to read Moses through the lens of American chattel slavery would be like you reading some uh, old, old children's book from the 1700s, and it refers to a clock and talks about the tick-tock of the clock, and you assume it's talking about a social media platform. <laughs> it's foolish. So we go back to Moses. So what does the Scriptures, what do the Scriptures mean when it refers to this institution of slavery? Well, the word translated slave in your Bibles is the Hebrew word eved. Unlike our English word slave, the Hebrew word eved is connected to the word for meaningful work. So, for example, this word is used twice in Genesis chapter 2. Before sin, before the fall, it's used twice to refer to Adam working the garden. So even in a world without sin, humanity was created to be eved, serving, working for God. Unlike our English word eved, uh, or unlike our English word slave, rather, the word eved was a common self-description. So you would often introduce yourself as an eved of somebody else. I am your eved. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Be similar to us saying today, I'm at your service. And you might say that to somebody. or Maybe people would have said that in decades past. But certainly we wouldn't refer to ourselves in any normal sense as slaves. And yet this word is used as a self-description quite often in the Old Testament. Unlike slavery in America, an Aved had rights and responsibilities. So, for example, Abraham's Aved, Eliezer, was in charge of Abraham's entire household. You remember, he was sent to go and get a wife for Isaac. You remember that prior to Isaac's birth, Eliezer was to receive the inheritance. He had rights, he had responsibilities, very unlike slavery here in our nation. And unlike slavery in America... The Aved relationship had nothing to do with race. So, for example, if you read the Old Testament, you'll find pretty quickly that Hagar was an Egyptian slave to a Hebrew couple named Abraham and Sarah. Meanwhile, Joseph, on the other hand, was a Hebrew slave to an Egyptian named Potiphar. The Aved relationship was not rooted in skin color like chattel slavery was in our nations. Very different. Unlike slavery in America, an Aved's work was temporary. So if you look in your Bibles, you're still in Exodus 21, I hope. Look at verse 2. Exodus 21, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So built in to the institution of slavery in at least the nation of Israel was this short-term contractual relationship. You would only at most serve for six years and then be set free. Very unlike what we saw here in our country. 
unlike slavery in America, and Evad's work was voluntary. Uh, go to Exodus 21, verse 16. Look at what it says. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now, contrast that with slavery in America. How were slaves brought to these shores? What would happen? People would go to Africa, maybe places like we prayed for this morning, and literally kidnap people, load them up on a ship, and bring them here. And the law of Moses given to the people of God, doing something like that would warrant the death penalty, not only for kidnapping and enslaving a man against his will, but for buying him. Very different from anything that we've experienced here in our country. If you couldn't be kidnapped and sold into slavery then, how did you become an Eved? It would only be when you personally volunteered yourself, when you signed up for this sort of contractual relationship. You can read about that in Exodus 21 and in Leviticus 25. Usually, it went like this. You're in a lot of debt. You, you can't get any sort of meaningful work that allowed you to pay off the debt. And so, you would enter into a contractual relationship to be much like a servant of a wealthier person until your debt was paid, at which point you would be set free. So, for all these reasons, the English word slave is probably not the best translation for this word evad. And so, I'm, I'm going to prefer the King James Version's translation where it uses the word servant, which probably more accurately gets the point across. And maybe you're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. A, a servant, a, the word servant doesn't really work here because the Bible talks about buying these slaves. You see that in 21, 21 verse 2, when you buy a Hebrew slave. Even when those terms about buying a slave are used in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean that the person is property, like slaves were in America. Uh, so one author uses this illustration. Think about somebody who plays for a professional sports team like the NFL. He belongs to a team that has a, an owner, right? And if at some point the owner decides... I don't really want this guy anymore, or I'm willing to let him be traded off. Another team can buy his contract. In fact, this similarity in language has led some people to suggest that the NFL is actually modern-day slavery. Now, I think we would debate that quite realistically, but the point remains, there's a difference between the slavery that we see in the book of Exodus and the slavery that haunted these shores. So for all these reasons and more, from here on out, I'm going to use the word servant to refer to the Evad in Exodus 20 to 21. But let me just say this. Even if you prefer the term slave, if you think that's a better term to use here, I just want you to just understand that comparing slavery in Exodus 21 to slavery in the United States is like comparing apples and oranges. They're very different things. Well, that's the institution of slavery. Let's consider another key concept together. That's the protection for servants. 
Look at verse 20 again. When a man strikes his servant, male or female, with a rod, and the servant dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. Now, who can tolerate a book that tolerates a master torturing his servant? For honest, this is troubling. But I want to suggest a little bit closer look can help us here. The, the context actually indicates that, that physically assaulting a servant could lead to severe penalties. So go a few verses ahead to Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27. Exodus 21, verses 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. So in other words, if, if you are a master and you had one of these servants and you beat him and knock out a tooth, you actually have set him free. All your investment in that relationship is over because of your mistreatment of him or her. Now, some would look at a verse like that and they'd say, okay, so all I have to do is make sure that I don't hit my servant hard enough to knock out his tooth or knock out her eye. As long as I just beat him a little bit, it's okay. Well, is there any protection for a servant in conditions like that? The law of Moses actually allowed servants, eveds, to run away from their abusive masters. This is revolutionary. If you know anything about American history, you know that in the year 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed by Congress, which required slaves to be returned to their masters, even across state lines. This was a, a bit of a compromise as, as the controversy over slavery in America was reaching a boiling point. This law was compromised. So if a slave from Georgia runs away and gets to Maryland, you could actually receive severe penalties if you did not send that slave back home. Now, slavery in the Bible is incredibly different. Look in your Bibles or on the screen at Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 and 16. You shall not give up to his master a servant who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your own towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. The law of Moses gave a provision for a servant or a slave, if you prefer, who is being mistreated by his or her master, they could actually run away and they were not allowed to be returned. They were protected. There was provision and care for them. In this way, the law of Moses was actually much more humane than the laws in the nations of that time. So, for example, the, the Code of Hammurabi, one of the ancient legal documents that we know of, we found archaeologically, in the Code of Hammurabi, many people who harbored a fugitive slave could actually be put to death. But in the law of Moses, not only were you protected, but you were encouraged, you were forbidden to, let your, to send a slave back 
to the master from which he ran away from. So rather than viewing this text as if it's authorizing a master to beat a servant within the edge of his life, see here grace that God gives to those that would find themselves in the condition of slavery. Your master cannot beat you without consequences. And you can run away and not be forced to return. And one final concept we have to examine this morning to understand the meaning of this passage is the punishment for abusers. The punishment for abusers. Look, at, look back in your Bible at verses 20 and 21. The text says, when a man strikes his servant, male or female, with a rod, and the servant dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the servant survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the servant is his money. That word avenged in the original language is the Hebrew word nekam. And one scholar writes, the verb nekam always involves the death penalty in the Old Testament. Always involves the death penalty. So notice what this passage is saying. If you kill your servant, you will receive what? The death penalty. Look a few verses ahead in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. Got your Bible open, scroll ahead, turn the page, Exodus 22, verse 1. Look at what the text says. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Do you notice the difference in that verse and what we just read in Exodus 21? What's the penalty for killing someone else's sheep or ox? You pay it back. What's the penalty for killing your servant or your slave? Death. Why? Because the Bible consistently from Genesis onward presents humanity as fundamentally different from the animal kingdom. We alone are made in the image of God. And uh, Genesis chapter 9 tells us if we take the life of man, then by man our life should be taken. There's dignity in each and every human life. Now, you might respond, and, and many do, why isn't the master punished if his servant survives a day or two? Again, wouldn't this just encourage masters to, to, to beat their servants within an inch of their life as long as they don't knock out a tooth or knock out an eye, just beat them a little bit? As long as you don't kill them, it's fine. Is that what the masters would have heard from a passage like this? I want to encourage you to remember two things. First, this is long before modern medicine. So in, in these days, if a master inflicted fatal wounds on a servant, it's unlikely that he would survive for very long. So requiring the, the death penalty for a servant dying that day would actually be a pretty effective way to make sure that masters did not treat their servants inhumanely. That would actually have been pretty effective. Second, remember that masters, the lives of masters mattered too. So notice what the law of Moses is doing. 
if you mistreat a servant and he dies that day at your hand, you ought to be arrested, imprisoned, and sentenced to death. But if the servant survives for a couple of days and then he dies, then let's get a little bit more information before we just assume that there was foul play here. That's what's happening in this verse. That's the the, the implication of this law. He should not be considered guilty and so proven innocent. If the servant died right away at his hand, he should be sentenced to death. But if it wasn't that cut and dry, he should be given the benefit of the doubt. And in the meantime, the rest of the Old Testament law related to the killing of another person would go into effect. So you go to Deuteronomy 19, which would ask, is the, was the death accidental? That's treated differently than someone who intentionally takes someone's life. Or was there motive? Deuteronomy 19, verses 11 to 13. If there was motive to take a life, then you treat that differently than if someone didn't appear to have motive. Or were there witnesses? Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. We ought not to just assume that someone is guilty of murder without witnesses. Or was the killing premeditated? Numbers 35. All of these different things would go into play to investigate and examine the death of a servant. But the point of this verse is that we ought not to unnecessarily assume that a servant who dies in his master's care was necessarily murdered by him. Does that make sense? So, those... um, One other potential stumbling block in this verse is a phrase at the very end of verse 21, for the slave is his money, or the servant is his money. This is another place where our translations don't necessarily help us. If you have a New American Standard Bible, it might help you a little bit more. The New American Standard Bible will often put in italics the words that are supplied by the translators to try to make sense of the text. And you'll notice in the NASB, the words the slave are italicized because those words are not in the original language. In fact, what the original language actually says is, uh, the, for it is his silver. That's what it says in verse 21. The implication seems to be that Moses is saying, listen, master, if you have mistreated your servant, it's going to come out of your pocket. It's your silver. It's your purse. It's your money. You're going to be paying for this person's well-being until they are recovered. You're going to be paying for the lost wages. Don't mistreat your servants. So, what is the meaning of this tough text. Let me, let me try to put it in my own words, what I think is an accurate explanation of what this text means. God's people living under the law of Moses must not physically harm their servants, regardless of the servant's gender. A master who kills his servant will receive the death penalty. If a master causes lesser harm, It'll come out of his pocket because he'll be paying for the servant's lost time working and for his medical expenses until he is well. 
That, I believe, is the meaning of this passage. It's not endorsing slavery like we saw here in our nation. It's not endorsing the owning of another person. It's not endorsing the abuse of another human being, the mistreatment of another human being as if they're farm equipment or your property. These are laws governing an institution that was quite common in that day. And these laws are governing that institution with much greater care for the servant than anything that would have been known in the day of Moses. That's the meaning of this passage. Now, what's the significance of it? The significance of this passage. The significance of a text is your relationship to the meaning. It's the implication that it has for the readers. It's, it's how we would apply it. So for example, if you were living on the base of Mount Sinai in a tent, and Moses comes down from the mountain, his face glowing, and he gives, he gives the people the law of Moses, and you hear this law, including how you treat a servant, how would it apply to you? The answer would depend on you. So for example, if you were a master and you had servants, a clear implication for you would be don't mistreat your servants. If you do, then justice will be handed down. They are not your property. They are not for you to do with as you will. They have rights too. If you were a servant, one implication for you would be to take some comfort knowing that in the law of Moses, there was protection for servants. You could run away if your master was abusive. That if he tried to take your life, his own life would be forfeit. If you were neither a master or a servant, but uh, perhaps a community leader, then one implication for you would be to carefully investigate the death of a servant. Don't assume the master is guilty of murder, but if he is, do your best to ensure that justice is swiftly served. You see how the way you apply it depends on your relationship to the law. What about us today? It's 2022. Unless some of you have been keeping some really dark secrets, none of you own a slave. How does this apply to you today? I want to suggest to you or I want to remind you what we said last week when we gathered and looked at, looked at Matthew 5, 17. You are no longer under the law of Moses. The Mosaic covenant has ended and the new covenant has begun. So do we then just rip this part out of our Bibles because we don't really need it, it's not important? Or is there something here for us to learn about Jesus about loving God and loving our neighbor. I want to suggest to you that there is. I want to suggest to you the coming of Jesus revolutionizes your relationship to this passage in two ways. Number one, this passage is fulfilled by Jesus' life and death. This text, this law is fulfilled by the life and death of Jesus. Matthew 5, 17, we read this last week. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This law is fulfilled by Jesus's life. In his sinless life, Jesus fulfilled this law. 
Now, now, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, you know Jesus was a poor man. He says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't have an Eved. He didn't have a servant. But Jesus, even though the, the letter of this law did not apply to him, he fulfilled the spirit of it. Jesus treated all people, whether they were servants or masters, whether they were vulnerable or whether they were oppressors, he treated all people with dignity and respect and gentleness and love. Think, for example, of the story of the centurion who had a servant who was sick. And the centurion comes to Jesus and asks Jesus to heal his servant. Jesus treats the servant with dignity and gentleness and respect by healing him. And he treats the centurion with respect in the way that he interacts with that centurion. The law is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. He alone perfectly treats all people as they ought to be treated. But this law is also fulfilled in Jesus' death. Go back to Exodus 21. What's the penalty in this law? What's the penalty in it? Is it? It's death. The penalty for breaking this law is death. Jesus also received the death penalty. But think about, I want you to think about for just a moment, the contrast between Jesus' death and the death penalty in this text. In this text, there is death for a master who mistreats his servant. But in the gospel, in his death, Jesus isn't like the master, he's like the servant. Philippians chapter 2 says, he took upon himself the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We are the abusers. We're the one mistreating God's suffering servant. Yet the penalty for our sin falls on him, not on us. That is glorious gospel good news. And if you're in this room and you don't know that good news, we invite you today to turn from your sins and trust in this Jesus who came to this earth and humbled himself like a slave and died for abusive masters. So this text is fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus. But also this text is fulfilled by love. This text, Christian, is fulfilled by your love. Jesus was once asked, what, are the greatest command, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Or Galatians will say that the law is fulfilled by our love. So how do we fulfill this law by our love? It's not enough to look at Exodus 21 and say, hurrah, Jesus fulfilled this in my place. No, let's look here and say, okay, how should Jesus propel me to love? Let me suggest just a few ways. Love God because he cares for the vulnerable and the powerful. 
It's one of the beautiful things about the passage we've studied this morning in Exodus 21. There is care and provision, not only for the mistreatment of servants, but also for the mistreatment of masters. Throughout this world, there has been a pendulum swing. Generation after generation, either we are valuing the powerful and it's the powerful who get their way and get what they want, or we value the vulnerable. And often we value one at the exclusion of the other. But God in the gospel loves both the weak and the powerful. He loves both the victimizer and the victim. He loves both the oppressor and the oppressed. As Jesus is crucified on that cross, he is dying for the man holding the hammer and the man beside him with nails through his hands and feet. This is a glorious God. In, in your suffering, Christian, you are at times very vulnerable, and Jesus loves you in that vulnerability. You're here right now, brother, sister, some of you hurting today. Jesus steps into your vulnerability, and he loves you there. Many of you, though, if we're honest, we're not feeling quite vulnerable this morning. We're feeling powerful. We're Americans. We're strong, we're wealthy, we're mighty, we've got it together. And Jesus loves you, strong sinner, even you, mighty one. He loves you right there and loves you enough to humble you just a little bit and help you to see who you really are. We don't serve a God who only loves the poor and weak. He loves those who think that they are rich and strong too. That's good news. So love him. Love your neighbor by caring for those that are in vulnerable situations. This is a passage about rightly caring for the vulnerable. Of course, a servant would be more vulnerable than his master. And so God, through Moses, regulates how to make sure that they are not unjustly treated as slaves or servants in the law of Moses. We too, as Christians, ought to love our neighbor by supporting legislation or caring for those that are in vulnerable situations. Maybe this is visiting a refugee and helping them sign up their kids for school. Maybe this is bringing coats to a family that just got here from Afghanistan, as many of you helped us with. Maybe this is, impacts the way that you vote, the way that you care for refugees or, or physically, mentally handicapped people or oppressed minorities. Maybe this means you roll up your sleeves and you, and you feed the hungry or you help the unwed mom in crisis who feels like she has no other options but to take the life of her unborn child. Love your neighbor by caring for the vulnerable. Love your neighbor by rightly treating those that you have authority and influence over. For those of you that find yourself in many relationships where you're like the master, treat them with dignity and respect that submit to your authority. Parents, this affects how you relate to your children. Bosses, employers, this affects how you relate to those that report to you. Elders, this affects how we relate to the sheep here in this congregation. We do not have the right to domineer anyone that's under our authority. We treat them with gentleness and respect, kindness, 
That's one way we fulfill the law of this text. I'd say one other way is to love your neighbor by refusing to assume that the powerful are automatically guilty. Isn't that what we've done as a society in the past few years? As things like intersectionality and critical race theory have exploded on the scene in the public consciousness, we have begun as a nation to assume that privilege or power means guilt. That's not right either, is it? It's not right. Every image bearer of God deserves love, dignity, and protection because they all matter to Jesus. They all should matter to us. Well, a bit later in his book, Sam Harris continues, and he says, as the Reverend Richard Fuller put it in 1845, what God sanctioned in the Old Testament and permitted in the New cannot be sin." This, of course, is referring to a a professing pastor who tried to use the Bible to justify American slavery. Sam Harris continues, he says, The good reverend was on firm ground here. Nothing in Christian theology remedies the appalling deficiencies of the Bible on what is perhaps the greatest and the easiest moral question our society has ever had to face. Reverend Fuller was wrong. He completely misunderstood what the Old Testament taught about slavery. The slavery that was promoted and defended by the so-called religious South in this nation had much more in common with the Code of Hammurabi than the Law of Moses. It could not be defended from Scripture. Reverend Fuller was also wrong because he completely misunderstood the relationship between the Old Testament and the New. Let me just tell you, brothers, sisters, if you're in here and you're a Christian, you should lament, you should mourn the fact that any Christian would have ever used the Bible to defend the evils that have happened in this nation. We should lament and grieve and mourn. Reverend Fuller was wrong. Sam Harris is wrong, too. He said that this was the easiest moral question our society has ever had to face. I would suggest to you that unraveling the evils of racism in our society was not easy. It took a bloody war and decades of legislation to overturn the evil that was promoted by pastors like Reverend Fuller. And we're still talking about racism today, aren't we? A lot. Which suggests that this great moral evil, and we would agree that it is, continues to tangle its deep, dark webs in our sinful hearts. And the Bible isn't part of the problem. The Bible points us to the only one who can deliver us from this mess. And the Bible tells us that the day is coming when Jesus will return, no longer in the form of a servant, but as a conquering king. And on that day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the conquering king, that you made yourself of no reputation, that you took upon yourself the form of a servant, 
that you were born in the likeness of men, and that you became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. And because of that death and the resurrection that followed, we join the Father in glorifying your name. Because you are our only hope. Even as Christians throughout world history, throughout the history of this nation, we have messed it up so much, so often, so royally sometimes. But the problem isn't in the pages of your word, it's in how we apply it as sinful saints. So forgive us for our failures, we pray. Help us to think rightly about your word. Help us to look humbly to you as our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand with me as we sing together.